0: Please open your Bibles to James, chapter four. Uh, our passage for this week, for now the third and final week in a row, is James four thirteen through five twelve. Once again, that's James four thirteen through five twelve. The Pirates of the Caribbean is one of the more successful movie franchises in history. All in all, it's grossed something like four point five. Billion dollars worldwide since the first of the five films opened in theaters about 15 years ago. Uh, the series is known for its imaginative concepts and stunning visuals. Probably the most memorable of which occurred in the first film in the series, The Curse of the Black Pearl. As the title implies, the whole basis of the plot revolves around a curse. The specifics are important are not important, so I won't get into the detail retelling the story of that movie. if you've already seen it. the, The long and the short of it, though, is that a pirate crew has stolen a cursed treasure, and until they return all the pieces of the treasure, they remain under this curse. One of the pieces of the treasure is missing, and they're on a quest to see it return. So what's the curse, then? The curse is that until the treasure is returned, they cannot die, which might seem like a kind of blessing at first, except that neither are they really alive. They're kind of caught in this in-between state where they're neither alive nor dead. That's where the the visuals in the movie kick in. These pirates appear normal in daylight. They look like normal people, but then when they're under the moonlight, their real identity is revealed and they take the form of these rotting, decaying skeletons. There's a point in the movie when the pirate Captain Barbosa tries to explain the curse to one of the protagonists, it's a woman uh, going by the alias of Elizabeth Turner, and as she tells him that she doesn't believe in ghost stories, Captain Barbosa says this. He says, Aye, that's exactly what I thought when we were first told the tale. Buried on an island of dead that cannot be found except for those who know where it is. Find it we did. There be the chest inside the gold. And we took them all. We spent them and traded them and traded them and frittered them away. On drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths, and all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. This, we learn, is the consequence of the curse. The pirates (laughs) live but they're apparently unable to feel anymore. Not the wind on their face, not the chill of a cold drink or the touch of human flesh, they are entirely without sensation. They still have desire, they're actually full of yearning, but they're completely unable to see those desires fulfilled. I sometimes wonder if that's what people think the, the Christian life is like. Or, at least, if they think that's what it's supposed to look like. Take a look at what's been going on here in James, for instance. For the past several months, we've been working through this epistle. And what we've learned so far is that there are these conflicts going on in the church. And what are at the root of these conflicts? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We learn it's their desires. They desire and do not have, James says. They murder and covet and cannot obtain. They fight and quarrel. It all goes back to their desires, to the things they want. The root desire in this instance, of course, is money. As I've explained over the past several weeks, the rich in the church want to maintain their comfort, and so after recruiting the service of their poor brethren to harvest their fields, they've made payment contingent upon circumstances outside of their control. Uh, More than likely, their plans have already failed. They promised to make payment once their crops have sold. For whatever reasons, that that apparently hasn't happened. they failed to make a profit. And now their brothers are angry over the fact that they've been cheated out of their wages. The poor are dragging these rich brothers before church tribunals. The rich brothers, for their part, are pleading innocence based on the fact that they simply can't pay after they fail to make a profit. It would seem that the church leaders are probably taking their side in these conflicts. All in all, the issue comes back to money on both sides. The poor brother wants to get paid, and the richer brother wants to keep his money. Even the church leaders, James tells us, they're tempted to favor the rich because of their love for money. It all goes back to money. God is now disciplining the church for their treatment of one another, and as James advises the church on the steps they need to take to remove this correction... He essentially tells them each to abandon their worship of money. We saw this perhaps most clearly last week when James tells the rich brother that their gold and silver have corroded, that they've laid up treasure for themselves in the last days. He says that they've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. They've only managed to fatten their hearts in a day of slaughter. The idea is that their love of money is actually bringing them under condemnation. And if they don't repent of it, then they may eventually find themselves judged by God as idolaters. So they must certainly abandoned their love of money. However, however, if you stop to think about it, it's not just the rich that James corrects, but the poor as well. Again, they're angry over the injustice they suffered at the hands of the rich, and they're wanting to slander and condemn these brothers for their unrighteousness. If you recall, James tells them, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He says, if you do that, then you're no longer under the law, but standing over it and will therefore be found as a transgressor of it. Basically, he tells them that they have to repent of their resentment towards their brothers or they too will face the wrath of God and fall under condemnation. Well, if you stop to think about it, that sort of requires that they repent of their love of money as well. They have to learn to somehow accept the injustices that have been committed against them without being consumed by hatred for the ones who've hurt them. That will require, at least in part, that they turn from their covetousness since it's that feeling of need for money that's driving their outrage. Again, James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That statement is just as true for the poor as it is for the rich. The reason they're outraged by their brother's selfishness is because they too covet the money their brother is keeping back from them by fraud. So if they're going to deal patiently with their brother in his sin, then they too must learn to put away their love of money. So what's the deal here? Is James telling these readers that they both need to abandon their want? I mean, if the source of the conflicts is their desires, right? Then that seems like the logical conclusion. If the root of the conflict is the passions which wage war within us, and if such conflicts contradict the gospel, then clearly this means that we have to learn to rid ourselves of those passions, right? So is that what Christianity is about? At times it can certainly feel that way. After all, Christians are constantly called to put the well-being of others first. We're told that this is the example that Christ has set for us. And this certainly seems to require a great deal of self-denial. In fact, Jesus even frames discipleship in these terms. Matthew sixteen twenty-four. he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christianity is a religion that seems built around the concept of self-denial. It's just like what we're seeing here in James. The rich brother is supposed to willingly forsake his desire for comfort for the physical well-being of his poorer brother. And the poorer brother is likewise supposed to willingly forsake his desire for justice for the spiritual well-being of his richer brother. So does this mean that Christians therefore share a similar fate to that of Captain Barbosa's cursed pirate crew are we doomed to yearn without ever realizing the hope of that yearning perhaps even are we commanded not to feel is, is the problem that we do feel that we do yearn when we're not supposed to feel or yearn and is our maturity measured by the degree to which we stop yearning stop desiring I think of Commander Spock from Star Trek. If you're familiar with that character, then you know that he's ruled entirely by his logic instead of emotions. He entirely suppresses his innate desires in order to be ruled by his mind alone. The end result is that he's an essentially emotionless being. Is that Christianity? I mean, clearly we're told to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. No doubt we're told to act according to what is true rather than by what we merely feel. That's certain. But does that mean that we're to be absent of yearning? Absent of desire? And if not, then what do we do with these desires? Given that we're told to deny them so much of the time. In short, what does it look like to yearn as a Christian? That's the issue that James is going to address in this morning's passage. Over the past couple of weeks, James has been addressing the sin of manipulative speech. That's how this desire for money has been expressing itself in the church, with manipulative speech. The rich have sought to defraud their brothers by making promises they don't have the power to keep. And in this passage, James exhorts his readers to repent of this sin by showing them the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. The deception we've seen is that manipulative speech comes from hidden motives. We want to use others for our own desires, and then we try to hide these secret desires with our deceptive and manipulative speech. The danger, James has shown us, is that these hidden motives will be both discovered and condemned. God isn't going to allow His people to be given over to these idolatrous desires. So, best case scenario, He'll either discipline and correct them for their idolatry, or worst case, He'll demonstrate that they are indeed not His people, in which case they'll be sentenced to suffer the wrath of God in hell. And this now leads us to the direction. The direction for manipulative speech. What are we to do now? now that we understand the deception and danger of manipulative speech. Clearly, James intends for us to put away this kind of speaking, but the question is, how? How are we to put away this kind of speech? After all, it's not just the speech that's the problem, right? But the desires that are driving it. That's where the speech is coming from, from these corrupt desires. And like James told us back in chapter 3, it's impossible to control the tongue. The tongue will inevitably reveal what's going on inside of us. So this should mean that we're going to have to do something about the corrupt desires inside of us that are giving rise to this speech if if we're ever going to see it put away. What does that look like? Does it mean that we have to learn to completely abandon these desires? Or even worse, might it mean that we have to learn to simply suppress them? Are we destined to simply burn with these passions without any hope of ever having them fulfilled? That's the question that James answers in this morning's passage as he explains the direction for manipulative speech. Our focus for this morning will be James 5, 7-12, but let's begin by reading this passage in its context, starting in James 4.13. Again, that's James uh, 4.13 through 5.12. James writes this. "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town "'and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. "'Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. "'What is your life? "'For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes.' Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you reach, weep, and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Once again, in this morning's passage, James shares with us the direction for manipulative speech. And if you're paying attention to the development of thought in this passage, then I think you can see that this direction or instruction can be broken down into two basic parts. There is the exhortation and the examples. Once again, that's the exhortation and the examples. Let's go ahead and begin by exploring the main thrust of this passage, the big idea, and that's the exhortation. We see this charge in verses 7 to 8, where James tells his readers, be patient. That's the charge. He tells them to wait. Once again, verses 7 to 8, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Once again, the root of these brothers' conflicts is their desires. They each have a yearning for something that isn't being presently fulfilled. For the rich brother, that yearning is for rest. They long for ease and comfort. Now, that might seem like sort of an odd desire on the surface. After all, we know they already have much. Back in verse 5, James says that they're currently living in luxury and self-indulgence. We know as well from verse 4 that they're hiring others to do much of their work for them. So it's not as if these brothers are exactly sweating it out trying to get by. All in all, the picture that James paints is that they actually have it kind of easy. And yet as good as they have it, they still want more. Perhaps it's because they understand how fleeting their riches are and so they're trying to make sure they have enough to survive in the future. Or perhaps they're simply greedy, which can so often be the case with those who are driven by a love for money. Either way, these Christians yearn after the hope of maintaining and even increasing their level of comfort. It's no different than what you tend to see with the rich in our society. They build their life around their career. They're incredibly careful with their investments. And why? I mean, sometimes it's because they simply want to be a good steward of God's resources. They want to glorify God with their use of their money. I don't want to discount that. But more often than not, it's because they covet ease, comfort. You know, they go to college and they pursue the cushy office job because they don't want to labor by the sweat of their brow. And they take full advantage of their company's 401k program because they don't want to work the rest of their lives. They want to retire. In fact, if if they really had it their way, they'd retire early. For some people, that's their goal in life. They don't want to just have an easy job. No, they want no job. They want to order their life in such a way that they can always be at ease. That's what governs their decisions. It's what determines the direction for their life, the types of choices they make. It's the promise of unending rest. That's what these richer Christians yearn for in this passage, and it's what's causing them to manipulate their brothers with this deceptive speech. They're going around and they're making their employees' payment contingent on circumstances outside of their control because they're trying to insulate themselves from the effects of adverse circumstances. They're trying to make sure that they remain at ease even if it comes at the cost of their poor brother's suffering. Again, it's a practice you see on display in our society all the time, whether it comes in the form of state-sponsored lotteries or predatory lending practices or even the proverbial golden parachute. The rich will not only try to figure out how to maintain or increase their riches, but they'll do it on the backs of the less educated or less connected if necessary. They'll willingly sacrifice the weaker members of their society if it only means they can increase their own personal ease. What do the poor yearn for? Well, they yearn for relief from the afflictions laid upon them by their richer brothers. Again, the rich yearn for rest and the poor yearn for relief. That's what we saw in this context. Their their brothers are defrauding them from their wages, they're laboring in the fields and they're not getting anything for it. And they want justice. They want someone, be it their church leaders or even God Himself, to come in and deal with these rich so that they can be free of these oppressive kinds of practices. Understand, these aren't people just loafing around and leeching off state sponsored welfare that we're dealing with here in James. These aren't people who are poor because they're lazy. And quite frankly, you didn't get too far in this society if you were lazy. There just wasn't much in terms of state-sponsored welfare at this time. So you didn't work, you didn't eat. That was more or less the long and the short of it, unless you were suffering from some serious disability and people chose to have compassion on you. So that's not what's going on with these poor. No, these brothers are working. They're out in the field harvesting grain. They're trying to do what they can to make it in the world and perhaps even get ahead. And then the rich are adopting these business practices that are essentially stealing their wages right out from under their nose. You see, it's not rest that these brothers are after so much as an honest day's wages for their labor. They want a paycheck. They want to know that when they put in a day's work, they get back a day's worth of wages in return. And they're not even getting that. Instead, they're having their wages stolen from them by the richer brothers. In short, they're suffering injustice at the hands of the rich. And so, what they want is relief from these afflictions, it's not ease they're after. But equity. They want someone to come in and deal with the wicked so that they no longer have to suffer the pain inflicted by their wickedness. The way that they're expressing this yearning, once again, is with their slanderous and condemning speech. That's how they're contributing to these conflicts, you'll recall. They're uttering oaths of a different kind not promises about the future, but curses from God. They're calling down the wrath of God upon their sinning brothers. James tells both the poor and the rich that they need to stop producing the kind of speech that creates these conflicts. We've already seen this in the immediate context, and James repeats the exhortations here. To the poor, James says, verse 9, look there, he says, "...do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you be not judged." And then to the rich, verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or or, or, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. By the way, that statement at the beginning of verse 12, but above all, that's what lets you know once again who's instigating these conflicts. James is saying, you want God to stop disciplining you? then you need to stop speaking evil against one another, certainly. But above all, stop sinning against one another in the first place. You need to put away these deceptive business practices that are both mocking God and defrauding your brother and giving rise to his hateful speech. So above all, this is where they need to begin, by putting away the boasts that are at the root of these conflicts. But really, it's both the boasting and the slander that ultimately need to be put away. And they both need to do this, by the way, so that verse 9, you may not be judged, and verse 12, you may not fall under condemnation. So both the rich and the poor have something at stake here. If either of them refuse to conform to this standard of conduct, then they're risking condemnation by the ultimate judge in these disputes, and that's God himself. Now the question is, how are the rich and the poor supposed to conform themselves to this standard of conduct? Once again, you go back to chapter 3, and there James calls the tongue, quote, a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says that every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed by mankind, but that no human being can tame the tongue. The idea seems to be that we will all inevitably reveal who we are and what we think with our tongues. It's simply unavoidable. So then how are the rich going to put away their arrogant boasting and how are the poor going to put away their slanderous judgments? Uh, Clearly something has to happen at the heart level, right? Something has to happen to the rich man's worship of money that will cause him to no longer covet his own personal comfort above his brother's physical needs. And something has to happen to the poor man's hope for deliverance that will cause him to no longer demand his brother's immediate destruction. How is that heart change going to happen? How does James handle these desires? Does he tell his readers to extinguish them? To put them away? Does he say that they're sinful desires and they're wrong for even having them in the first place? Or does he tell them that they can't extinguish them? That they still need to bottle them up, though, since God doesn't intend for them to ever be fulfilled? No, what's interesting is that James doesn't rebuke Either the rich brother or the poor brother for their desires. He doesn't tell the rich that it's wrong for them to desire rest. Neither does he tell the poor that it's wrong for them to desire relief. Instead, he tells them to simply wait, to be patient. Wait for what? Verse 7. Be patient, he says, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. You see, it's not wrong for the rich to yearn for rest. And neither is it wrong for the poor to desire relief. It's just that neither rest nor relief are going to be completely realized this side of the coming of Christ. Until then, the curse still stands. And so long as the curse stands, the condition of that curse, which includes the sweat of labor, And which includes the disruption of human relationships caused by sin. Those conditions are going to be in effect. At the return of Christ, the curse will be lifted and these conditions will be removed. No longer will there be any more sorrow or pain because the creation will no longer resist the will of man. And no longer will there be any more wickedness because all sin will be removed through either condemnation or glorification. So there's a time coming when both the rich and the poor will have what they're seeking. The rich will gain their comfort and the poor will be freed from the afflictions of the wicked. But that's all still future. And until then, these Christians must wait. It's just like what we saw in Hebrews 4 just a few weeks ago. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The time for rest, the time for relief isn't now. And so long as Christians try to live like it is, They're going to end up sinning against one another. It's unavoidable. Their desires are simply incompatible with God's current plan for the creation. And so the only way they're going to be able to fulfill these desires is by trying to work outside the parameters of that plan with sin. And so they must wait. James illustrates this concept with an example that both the rich landowners, and the poor day laborers working their fields, uh, which they both would have been incredibly familiar with. And that's the farmer. Farming, of course, requires an incredible amount of patience. The farmer plants his seed, and then he waits many months before he's able to harvest any crop from it. Those months of waiting doesn't mean that the desire for a crop won't be fulfilled, It just means that it's going to be fulfilled in time. James points to that example and he says the kingdom of God is just like that. He says, you all know how to wait for a crop. How come you can't wait for the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of His promise in the same way? In fact, I think James even takes it a step further. He he mentions the farmer waiting for both the early and the late rains. In Palestine, those rains essentially mark the length of the growing season. There are the early rains, which come at the end of a long summer and soften the sun-parched ground for planting. And then there are the late rains, which come at the end of the growing season and ripens the crop for harvest. Contextually, James has already indicated where these Christians are in the growing season. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he told them that they are the first fruits of God's creatures. The idea is that they're, even at, they're, they're not even at the beginning of the growing season. They're at the end. The late rains have already come. The crop is ripening, and it's just a very short time before they'll receive their reward. I know that's probably not a perfect fit for this illustration, since back in chapter 1, God is the farmer in that example, and here they're the farmer. But this is most certainly the idea James seems to be going for. Verse 80 tells them to establish their hearts. Essentially, to bear up and take hope. To establish their hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. The idea is that it's already near. In fact, it's actually the more literal translation of this phrase. The appearing of the Lord has come near. It's come near. And the grammar there is significant, by the way. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek, and the sense is that it's already arrived. In a sense, it's actually not future, His coming. It's present. It's that close. As James says in the second half of verse 9, he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like, you know how when you order something on Amazon or something like that, and then you go and you track its delivery status online? And it'll say something like ordered or shipped or out for delivery or even arrived or delivered. Well, James is saying that when, it, when we're talking about waiting until the coming of the Lord, it's not as if the shipment is merely ordered or even out for delivery. No, the idea is that the delivery guy is actually standing at the door and he's just waiting for God to tell him to ring the bell. He's already here. If you're wondering how prophecy works in the New Testament, like how the New Testament writers can say that the coming of the Lord is near or at hand when it's been 2,000 years since His resurrection, that's the idea. They don't necessarily mean near in the sense of chronological time, but near in the sense of sequence. There's nothing left in the delivery sequence for Christ to perform to deliver the fullness of God's blessing to His people. No, He's already at the door. He just needs to ring the doorbell. James is telling his readers that it's that close. That is how long they have to wait. That can't be too hard, can it? To wait that long for rest from your labors, to wait that long for relief from your suffering. See, it's not wrong to yearn, Christian. It's not wrong to have desires, so long as those desires are biblical. You just need to adjust your expectation on the timing or fulfillment of those desires. You have to learn to wait. I think if there's one virtue that's missing in the church today, one Christian concept that it's ignoring, which it needs to adopt desperately in order to rise and flourish in this world, it's that of waiting. Our society isn't built on the idea of waiting. It's built around the idea of instant gratification, right? We have fast food restaurants and fast pass tickets at the amusement park. We have direct deposits, so you don't have to wait to cash your check on payday. And if you don't want to wait that long, then you can just use your credit card or even take out a payday loan so you can get what you need now. We communicate by text and instant message because a phone call often takes too much time. We expect our breaking news by the minute, and we consider any news older than 24 hours to be out of date. We even sign up for news alerts so that we can get any breaking news that we're interested in pushed to our phones immediately. Don't want to spend time actually shopping at the store? Then order it online. Want a coffee from Starbucks but don't want to wait? Then place a mobile order. It will be waiting for you when you arrive. It's been sometimes said that the Burger King slogan, have it your way, epitomizes the general attitude of the American culture. We want the world to cater to our tastes and our desires. In short, we believe that life is about us, and we see no reason why we shouldn't be able to have everything we want and have it on our terms. But I think it goes further than this. We don't just demand gratification, but instant gratification. We want it our way, and we want it right away. Unfortunately, I tend to think This idea finds its way into the church, and to be fair, that's only natural. After all, we're saved out of this society, so it makes sense that we're going to come with some of the accompanying baggage. So I'm not trying to scold or chastise when I say this, but we bring this impatience with us into the church, and that's a problem. Because that expectation, that desire for instant gratification, isn't really compatible with the promises of the gospel. In fact, it's not really compatible with God's general operation in the world, period. I think you see that point bear itself out in the examples that James provides in verses 10 and 11. Again, in this passage, there's the exhortation and the examples. The exhortation is up in verses 7 to 8. James tells his readers to be patient. He then follows up this exhortation by enjoining them to put away their slanderous and manipulative speech in verses 9 and 12, respectively. Well, sandwiched in between these two commands, James provides evidence for his exhortation in the form of a couple of examples. First, he points to the general examples of the prophets. I don't know if you realize this, but the prophets often had to wait a very long time to see the fulfillment of God's promises come to pass. Take Abraham, for instance. Do you realize that Abraham was 75 years old when God spoke to him in the land of Haran and said he'd be the father of a great nation? Now, take that by itself. Abraham waited 75 years before God even told him that he would have children. That's a lifetime in and of itself. And how old again was he when Sarah finally gave birth to Isaac? Do you guys remember? He was 100 years old. Do you realize that? Abraham waited 10 years for God to give him a son. He didn't get a son, and so he went to his servant, Hagar, and she bore him Ishmael, and then it was another 15 years after that that Sarah finally gave birth to Isaac. Can you believe that? That's a long time to wait for God's promise. But Abraham isn't the only one. Moses, he waited a total of 80 years. Do you understand that? Israel Israel waited 400 years in Egypt before the time would come for them to receive the land that God promised to Abraham. According to Acts 7, Moses struck down the Egyptian on the basis of that promise, believing that the time was up and God was granting them deliverance. He was 40 years old at the time. He then spent 40 years in exile before he was sent to lead the Exodus, and then he spent another 40 years wandering with God's people in the wilderness before God let him gaze into the Promised Land. 80 years he was waiting. David was probably in his mid-teens when he was anointed by Samuel. And he wouldn't become king until he was 30. So he spent about 15 years waiting for God to fulfill that promise, and much of that was spent running from Saul, so he could identify with the yearning for relief that the poor are experiencing here in James. The prophet Daniel waited a full 70 years for God to fulfill his promise to return his people from exile in Babylon. You get into the New Testament and Mary receives the annunciation from Gabriel. She receives the visit from the shepherds and the magi after that. And the scripture says that she quotes, simply quote, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She understood something of what they meant, and yet she didn't go out and act on them right away. Instead, she waited for their fulfillment. In Luke 2, Jesus is presented in the temple after his birth, and the priest Simeon is there waiting for him. Luke says that he was a devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon sees the child Jesus and he takes him into his arms and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Who knows? how long Simeon was waiting. But Luke certainly presents it as if he was waiting for the fulfillment of this promise for some time. I mean, can I, should I go on, right? If we had time, we could talk of Noah and Jacob and Joseph and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. I mean, there's a sense in which you could say that the entire story of the Old Testament is one of waiting. Just take the very first promise made after the fall genesis 315 the promise of a redeemer do you realize that it took from 4000 to 8000 years somewhere in that range for god to fulfill that promise adam never saw the fulfillment of that promise nor did any of the any of the other people who hoped in that promise all the way up until the time of john the baptist Are you starting to see this? This this whole book is about the importance of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, I'll tell you my favorite example of waiting in the entire Bible. And that's Jesus. It's hard to say how the mind of the God-man works, so the degree to which he was conscious of his divine identity at least in those early years is perhaps a bit speculative but at the very least we know we know definitively that he knew exactly who he was by the age of 12 that's how old Jesus was when Joseph and Mary accidentally left him in the temple and he told them did you not know that I must be in my father's house so even by the most conservative estimates we know that Jesus was completely aware of the fact that he was uniquely the son of God by at least that time if not much sooner Now, Luke goes on to tell us that he didn't actually begin his public ministry until he was around 30 years old. Can you you imagine that? You know that you're the Son of God, that you're destined to perform the greatest act of obedience and worship and sacrifice that the world has ever seen. You know that you've been sent to redeem the human race from its bondage of sin and that you'll even one day rule the earth. You know what the glories of heaven are like and that you're not there right now. You know all that and then you go back to podunk nazareth back up in the sticks and build what furniture or houses or something like that for the next 18 years I mean can you imagine that here we are waiting for God to answer our prayers for like 6 months maybe a year maybe even perhaps 5 years and then when he doesn't answer in the way we like we cry out where are you God can't you hear me Meanwhile, Moses is over here hanging out in the desert for 80 years. And God is making his own son wait a good 30 years before letting him get started. I mean, have you not read? That's what Jesus would say to you the next time you start to make one of these complaints about the timing of God's plan. And that's the point that James is trying to make here as well. Do we not look back on those saints who endured with such patience and considered them blessed on the account of the outcome of their steadfastness? So why can't you wait for a little while? Don't you realize what the outcome is going to be? To emphasize the point, James draws on the example of one Old Testament saint in particular, and that's Job. I mean, you want trials and afflictions? Well, Job got them in spades. Dead servants, dead livestock, dead sons and daughters. His wealth and posterity completely wiped out in a matter of moments. Essentially all of his earthly joy taken from him. And yet the scripture says in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He was patient. Okay, you say, but at least he had his health. That's what Satan said too. And so he asked for that as well and God gave him permission to touch his body. And Satan covered him with sores from head to foot. Job's sitting there in an ash heap, scratching his sores with a piece of broken pottery. It's so bad his wife, who's ever the source of encouragement, she's telling him, just curse God and die already. And yet the scripture still says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, he still waited on the Lord. That's more or less the story of Job. He wrestles with discontentment, no doubt, but throughout it all, he still waits on the Lord far beyond the limits of any normal human being. James says, You have heard of his steadfastness, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know what he's referring to there, don't you? He's referring to the fact that at the end of the book, Job ends up better off than where he started. Job doesn't end in misery, does he? No, the book closes by saying, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. It says, and after this, Job lived. After this, after the trials. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. God restored Job's fortunes. Why did God do that? James tells us at the end of verse 11. He says, because He is compassionate and merciful. He says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have to understand, God doesn't intend for His people to wait forever because He is compassionate and merciful. It's like Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God clearly isn't holding anything back, right? Not if He spilled the blood of His only begotten Son so that we might have the hope of eternal life. So we shouldn't think that God merely means for us to go without. No, He clearly intends to bless us richly. He loves us. And yet that being said, we also must understand that God doesn't work according to our time frames either. Remember, 25 years may seem like a very long time for you. But as Peter reminds us, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. From where he's standing in eternity, the time we have to wait is very short. And quite honestly, guys, from where we will one day stand in eternity, it's the same for us as well. You know how when you were little, it seemed like waiting for Christmas or a birthday... I mean, it felt like an eternity, and you thought you'd never get there, and then you weren't sure how you'd ever make it. But now you look back on it all, and you probably wonder what all the rush was about. Well, that's how this life is going to feel after the first thousand years in heaven. You'll look back, and you'll see what James is saying here, that the judge was always standing at the door, that your weight was actually very, very short. So as Peter states in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is actually not slow, as some count slowness. Rather, He's patient towards you. Peter says He he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now that's sort of interesting, isn't it, when you think about that, 2 Peter 3? Peter tells us there that we aren't the only ones that have to wait. It says that actually God is waiting too. God is just as eager for us to enter into his rest as we are. He's just as eager to see an end to sin as we are, even more so, right? And yet Peter says he's waiting patiently as well. Why? Because he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, he's compassionate and merciful. Even this command to wait is actually driven by his selfless love. So you see, this desire for instant gratification actually isn't compatible with the promises of the gospel. It's really not compatible with God's general operation in the world, period. The whole story of the Bible is that of the righteous waiting patiently for God to fulfill His promises in the redemption of mankind. And they wait, why? Because God is patient toward us. They wait because He is compassionate and merciful and desires to bring His purposes about slowly for our good. Unfortunately, we don't always bring this mindset into the church, and when that's the case, the consequences are disastrous. You know, the Scripture says that Christians are supposed to live differently. It says that the world should be able to look on us and realize that we're not like them, that we love differently, that we have the mark of Christ on us. But do you ever stop to think about what enables that Christ-likeness? What makes us so willing to surrender our well-being, our earthly hopes and dreams for the sake of others? What's supposed to motivate these rich, for instance, to prioritize the well-being of their poor brothers above their own personal ease and comfort? For that matter, what motivates the poor to deal patiently with their sinning brothers? What makes us so willing to overlook the offenses committed against us? The church is supposed to be this people that resembles God by bearing with and even loving their enemies. Where does that strength come from? I know the short answer to that question is the Holy Spirit, right? God enables this kind of supernatural love, but still, I don't think we should take that to mean that our minds are not engaged in this transformation process. So what truths does God use to produce that love? What do we believe that makes us different? Do you understand that the difference between us and the world is our faith, isn't it? So what is it about our faith that transforms us into this sacrificial, patient, Christ-like people? And the answer, ladies and gentlemen, is our hope. It's like what it says in Hebrews 11.6, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know how James told these readers to draw near to God because when they draw near to God, he'll draw near to them. Well, right here we find out how to draw near to God. He says whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That hope propelled Jesus' obedience, like it says in Hebrews 12.2. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So if we're going to be like Him, if we're going to love like He loves, then we should expect that we're going to be driven by the same sort of hope. And that, brothers and sisters, means that we must learn to wait. Wait. You stop and think about it, and so much trouble breaks out in the church when we lose this perspective. You go back to the question I started with today. Is Christianity essentially a religion of self-denial? Well, the answer to that question is no. Not at all. It's most certainly a religion built around the concept of delayed gratification. Delayed gratification over instant gratification, but it most certainly isn't about mere self-denial. If anything, God actually encourages us to faithfulness with the promise of His blessing. He assumes our desire to be happy and calls us to find our joy in Him. So, this isn't a religion about mere self denial. But, how many people think it is? Because they overlook or ignore the concept of Christian hope. And, how many are even driven away from the faith because of this misunderstanding? How many Christians suffer from discouragement? and even stumble in their faith because they think God isn't hearing their prayers. And all because they're unwittingly imposing their expectations, their measures of faithfulness, their time frames on God. Perhaps most of all, how many Christians struggle with selfishness and sin because they've set all of their hope in this life only? This concept of patience, of waiting... Is at the very center of our faith. And so if we're going to be faithful to live in the way that Christ has called us, then we need to listen very closely to what James is telling us here. We need to learn to set our hope on the coming of the Lord and wait. Are you hurting this morning, Christian? Has someone sinned against you? Have they perhaps even defrauded you or slandered you? Are you yearning for relief from these afflictions? Do you perhaps even find yourself wanting to cry out for judgment? If so, then I encourage you to take heart. The judge is standing at the door. You don't need to defend yourself. You can love your enemy. You only need to fix your eyes upon heaven and wait for the coming of the Lord. Maybe you're not hurting. Maybe you're like the rich in this passage. You're hoarding. You're struggling to sacrifice, struggling to love because you want rest. You're yearning for ease, for comfort. If so, can't I just encourage you? You don't need to abandon that hope. But you would be wise to redirect it. I think of the exhortation from Jesus. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can find the strength to be selfless. You can learn how to put your brother first. You just need to set your eyes on heaven and await the coming of the Lord. This is how we're going to see our dealings with one another change. It's how we'll see our manipulative speech transformed and our condemning speech put away. It's by establishing our hearts on the coming of the Lord. And with this in mind, we close this morning with an encouragement from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty to 57. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God.